This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Our next story comes from Christy Stone Hamrick and her piece in Life Set about something we all think about and all probably think we don't do enough of. Exercise. Here's her unique take. Yeah! Oh, hello. I'm White Goodman, owner, operator, and founder of Globo Gym America Corp. And I'm here to tell you that you don't have to be stuck with what you got. Hey, Rory looking good. Here at Globo Gym, we understand that ugliness and fatness are genetic disorders, much like baldness or necrophilia. And it's only your fault if you don't hate yourself enough to do something about it. And that's where we come in. (laughs) So, Americans are fat. At least that's the running monologue playing out in more media outlets than we can completely ignore. Get in my belly! Come on! But somewhere along the journey from childhood to retirement, the solution to that problem has become the New Year's resolution that almost everyone makes and almost everyone hates. Exercise more. As children, playing outside was the reward, not the punishment. Now you're all in big, big trouble. So much so that a ridiculous trend in too many elementary schools today is for children to be deprived of outside playtime in a stationary timeout at recess as punishment. Work, 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 everyone. Because we all know that the one thing that helps discipline a hyperactive child to be calm is enforced stillness. Go stand in the corner. Or not. Yet trudging through the institutional world of education, exercise became the thing that the quintessential sadistic gym teacher enforced. Those that can't do, teach. And those that can't teach, teach gym. Complete with tests, metrics, and goals for the unattainable. The joy of movement dimmed as the realization that perfection was just not on the menu for most of us grew. And there was the math to prove it. Charts, indexes, measurements, graphs, all calculated to show the weary where they fall short. Exercise stopped being many people's entertainment when it stopped being fun. I can't be the only person who finds modern-day conversations about exercise about as compelling as a marketing report full of deliverables and metrics, or like a performance review by a cranky boss who won't notice the 10 things you did right, but only the one thing you did wrong. Here we are. Look. This is fitness. These things are correlates, maybe components, but absolutely positively subordinate to what happens here. You with me? I already live in a world of deadlines and demands. Whether at home or at work, I must comply with so many requirements that I cannot bear to take up an activity that has a to-do list. Monica, it's Sunday morning. I'm not running on a Sunday. Why not? Because it's Sunday. (laughs) It's God's day. You say stop, and we stop. Okay. Stop. In fact, a working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research reported that even when people were paid to go to the gym, most were not motivated to do so. No, come on, we can't stop. Come on, we got three more pounds to go. I am the energy train, and you are on board. Woo-woo! 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 I'll say that line again. Most were not motivated to do it. 
Money could not camouflage the reality that many have lost that love and feeling for organized pain. You know, I try to stay positive. So you... You feel like going for a run? Because, you know, you don't have to. If you want, you could just take a nap right here. Okay. And when the sales pitch is no pain, no gain, how surprising is it that many people just say no? Please go away. Let me sleep for the love of God. As my own children reach adulthood, I listen to their conversations about how they should exercise, if only they had the time. Should stands doomed in the English language. A verbal storeroom for closets we don't want to clean or vegetables we don't want to eat. Um, you know, we really should quit. Okay, let's quit. Yes, great! <laughs> as soon as you should do something, you don't want to do it. Hey! Hey! Uh-oh. Busted. <laughs> Rachel, we tried to quit, but it was too hard. In today's competitive school environments, the emphasis can be so much on winning that coaches don't want to spend time with kids in general, but rather a specific few. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? So they call every team to no. the top players. If a coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. Forgotten is the beautiful model of days past, called my childhood, in which every kid could come out to practice and to participate with the team. Hey, little buddy, hold up, man. While only a deserving and talented few suited up on game day. Don't you understand, man? If you don't cool it out there, you're going to end up getting yourself killed. If I cool it, I won't be helping you guys get ready for the next week's games. Got it? The team was bigger than the perfect, and the fun of training together was its own reward. If you need a reminder of that, watch the movie Rudy with a box of tissues. You ready, champ? I'm ready for this my whole life. I am a proud member of the track B team and will probably live longer for it. The A team intensified their performances and ran until they were sick in the grass, striving for excellence, admirable to be sure. But on the B team, we jogged on the track, rarely so intensely that we couldn't keep the conversation running, and got out of school on the day of the meets to run a few races and cheer on the winners. Staying in shape in the context of community was the draw. Recently, I've rediscovered running, which for me means faster than walking, at a pace most likely to be the worst in any timed race. I don't want to train for anything, achieve anything, or set a record. What I like best about running is that I'm not working. I wonder if more people would overlook the fact that they're exercising if they could remember that it used to be fun outside. It feels a bit un-American to tell people don't go for the gold, but I suspect that more people would try getting active if it sounded less like work and a lot more like a reward. You want to play me? Outside, you get a break from work, chores, family, computers, and responsibilities. Take a page from your five-year-old self and have a moment of fun where the sun is shining. And don't let the fact that some will label your activity exercise ruin it. And that's Christy Stone Hamrick's story about exercise here on Our American Stories. And great job as always on that one, Greg.
And we continue here on Our American Stories, and our next story is about an American legend named Richard King. King's legacy can be seen on every tailgate and door of Ford's upscale F-Series trucks and their Expedition Model 2. The logo reads King Ranch. The partnership makes sense because both the Ford Motor Company and the King Ranch in Texas are built on the same heritage, ruggedness, and authenticity. Here to tell the story of Richard King is Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. A former U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA, Dr. McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries and is a regular contributor to Our American Stories. Here's Roger McGrath. The cattle kings of the Old West carved empires out of the wilderness. They were larger-than-life characters, bold, daring, intelligent, courageous, tough. They had great strength of character and iron wills. No cattle king exhibited these characteristics more than Richard King. Born in New York City to Irish immigrant parents in 1824, Richard King is only three years old when his parents die and he is left in the care of an aunt. At nine years old, he is apprenticed to a jeweler. A jeweler works him hard six days a week. On his day off, the young boy walks down to the docks of Manhattan and watches the ships come and go. He dreams of climbing aboard a ship and sailing off. At 12 years old, he does just that. Here's William Yancey, historian at Texas A&M University, Kingsville. He ran away to the docks in New York City, and he snuck on board an ocean-going ship called the Desdemona, and he hid out in the hold of that ship for about two weeks, just scrounging whatever food he could get his hands on. Now, after two weeks, some sailors found him in the hold of that ship, and at this point, the ship was already well out to sea. So they grabbed him, brought him up to the captain. The captain asked him the question, what is your name, boy? And he immediately answered, my name is Richard King, and you can either throw me overboard or put me to work, but I'm not going back. The captain seemed to be impressed by this young man's attitude, so he put him to work. He served as the cabin boy for the remainder of that voyage and did a fine job for the captain. So when this ship got to its final destination, which was Mobile, Alabama, the captain of the ship believed that this kid had a future in the maritime trade. He was unusually bright. He was a very hard worker. He also realized that an ocean-going vessel is probably not the best place to raise an 11-year-old boy. For the next several years, King works in a variety of capacities on several different ships. He demonstrates such intelligence, talent, and leadership that two different ship captains school him in navigation and command of a ship. By the time he is 16, he has a pilot's license and knows the Gulf Coast and the rivers of the Cotton Kingdom like the back of his hand. In 1842, King enlists for service in the Seminole War in Florida. It is during his Seminole War service that he meets Mifflin Kennedy, another ship's officer. King and Kennedy will become lifelong friends. Kennedy had been born in Pennsylvania and, like King, had first gone to sea as a cabin boy and worked his way up to become a ship's pilot. By 1843, Richard King has grown and matured. The 19-year-old is square-jawed, well-muscled, and tall for the times at 5 feet 11 inches. When provoked, he can turn the air purple with profanity. 
that makes his friendship with the soft-spoken Quaker, Mifflin Kennedy, something of a surprise. In 1847, Richard King enlists for a second war, taking command of the ship Colonel Cross, and rises to rank of captain in the U.S. Navy during the Mexican War. King serves for the war's duration, transporting troops and supplies. He becomes intimately familiar with the Texas and Mexican coasts and with the Rio Grande River. It is during his service in the Mexican War that King recognizes steamship service would revolutionize the commerce of South Texas, especially the Rio Grande Valley. When the war ends, he buys this ship he commands as war surplus and is often steaming. King soon forms a partnership with his old friend, Mifflin Kennedy. By the mid-1850s, their company is operating more than two dozen ships, and thanks in part to their low rates, they are monopolizing shipping on the Rio Grande River. They will continue in this preeminent position for more than two decades. Here again is William Yancey. In 1850, Captain King had been on a steamboat run to Rio Grande City and back. He had had a rough couple of days. He had had problems with his sailors. He had had problems with the engines on his steamboats. The final straw was when he got back to Brownsville. He went to moor his steamboat in the slip where he normally kept it, and somebody already had a boat there. Today, there was a steamboat in this slip. Now, everybody in Brownsville knew not to park their steamboats there, because that was Richard King's slip, but today there's a steamboat there. Well, this sent him over the edge. He starts cursing a blue streak. Had to go down the river a little ways, found an empty slip to moor his boat, and he starts walking back towards this houseboat, and he's about to give the occupant of this houseboat a piece of his mind. Well, he never got a chance to do that. There was a young lady on the houseboat who had heard him, and she decided to confront him first and the two walk towards each other and this young lady says essentially who do you think you are using language like that this is my father's houseboat he has just as much right to be here as you do why don't you spend less time making a fool of yourself and more time washing your filthy boat and at that richard king didn't really have a response he's not someone who was left speechless very often but this time he was left speechless he turned around and he walked back to his boat and then he and his sailors spent the rest of the afternoon washing that boat. Over the next several days, he couldn't get this young lady out of his mind. So he's going to go to his best friend and business partner, Mifflin Kennedy. So he goes to Kennedy and asks him, who's the young lady whose father's houseboat's parked in my slip? And Kennedy says, well, that's Miss Henrietta Chamberlain. Her father's the new Presbyterian minister in town. Kennedy said, there's only one way you're going to get to meet her, and that's if you start going to church with her. Well, over the next several weeks and months, he becomes a very faithful Presbyterian. He um, is there every time the doors of the church are open. And to make a long story short, he'll begin a four-year courtship of Miss Henrietta. But eventually, the two of them will be married in 1854 there in Brownsville. Uh, her father performed the ceremony. The ceremony was at their church. King takes risks when those with fainter hearts shy away. He steams sections of the Rio Grande where others think it impossible to go. He designs ships specifically for the fast currents and narrow bends of the river, enabling him to reach destinations previously considered impossibly remote. 
While dominating trade on the Rio Grande, King recognizes that much of the land of southwestern Texas would not support farming, but would be good for cattle. As a result, he begins to buy property, including the 53,000-acre Santa Gertrudis Grant. He pays $1,800 for the grant, thought by many to be near worthless because recurrent droughts leave much of the area a wasteland. King reckons he can overcome the dry spells by damming a river and building a reservoir. When a drought does hit, King's cattle have plenty to drink, and he is able to buy cattle for next to nothing from dry properties and increase his herd by thousands. In 1854, Captain Richard King is going to find some help for his cattle operation from an unlikely source. During the 1850s, he made several trips to Mexico to buy cattle to stock his ranch with. Now, on one particular occasion, he went to a village called Cruias, which was in the state of Tamaulipas, maybe 100 miles southwest of Matamoros. This village at the time was well known for its cattle herds and for its vaqueros or cowboys, but they were in the middle of a three-year drought. All the grass was dead, there wasn't any water, the cattle were dying. So Richard King goes there and he makes a pitch to the villagers because they own the herd in common. And he basically said to them, why don't you sell me your entire herd? If you don't, they're all gonna die and this way you'll have money in your pocket and you can start over. So the villagers said, let us think about it. You go away, come back tomorrow morning, we'll have an answer for you. So Captain King went away for the evening. He came back the next day, and the villagers said, here's what we're willing to do. We're willing to sell you the entire herd if you'll take as many of us as want to go back to your ranch, and we'll work that herd for you. Well, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? He needs help. They need cattle to work. So about 100 villagers are going to come back to the ranch in Texas with Captain King at that point. They become the first vaqueros or cowboys on the ranch, and over time, they take a lot of pride in working for Captain King. They start to call themselves Quineños, which roughly translated means King's men or King's people. Whenever he can, King buys more land. His philosophy is simple, buy land and never sell. And when we come back, we continue the story of Richard King here on Our American Story. Turn to our American stories and the remarkable story of Cattle King, Richard King. Let's continue where we last left off. During the Civil War, Texas secedes from the Union, joins the Confederacy. Within months, the U.S. Navy effectively blockades the Gulf Coast, cutting off the South's greatest source of income, cotton exports. In these dire circumstances, King becomes one of the Confederacy's heroes, a blockade runner. He is so successful that he becomes a legend. It doesn't hurt that he is handsome and well-built. He becomes a real-life Rhett Butler. All we've got is cotton and slaves and arrogance. Union forces raid the King Ranch late in 1863 and loot and burn everything they can. 
However, their principal target, Richard King, escapes. And when the Confederates retake South Texas in 1864, King is back in business. With the Confederate surrender in April 1865, though, King slips into Mexico. King's story might have ended right there. But late in 1865, he secures a pardon from President Andrew Johnson and resumes all of his former activities. Here again is William Yancey, historian at Texas A&M University, Kingsville. Now, it's not until 1867 before he really starts to reestablish his full-time cattle operation. And that just goes to show what good sense of timing the man had. Because around 1867, there started to develop a huge market for beef in the Northeast. As the Northeast becomes more industrialized, people are moving into cities, so they're not raising and growing their own food. You also have a large influx of immigrants from Europe. There is a need for beef. And Richard King becomes one of the first South Texas ranchers to realize that you can make quite a bit of money supplying that need. Now, at the time, there aren't very many railroads in Texas. So in order to get the beef to where it is needed, you have to walk them to where the railroads were. And that meant cattle drives. Richard King will become one of the first South Texas ranchers to drive cattle, specifically the Texas Longhorn, from his ranch in South Texas to railheads first in Missouri and then later in Kansas. At the time, you could purchase Longhorns for between two to four dollars a head in South Texas, sell them for around twenty dollars a head in Fort Worth, maybe even as high as forty by the time you got to Kansas. And Captain King was able to make a considerable amount of money doing this. Eventually, Longhorns, however, are going to fall out of favor in northeastern markets. The problem with Longhorns is their beef is very tough and stringy, and uh, eventually, as railroads start to penetrate more of the country, it's easier for ranchers in other areas to raise better-tasting breeds of beef, load them onto railroad cars, and ship them to slaughterhouses in Chicago for movement on to the east. In 1869, he leads his first herd north on the long drive. For King, coming from his ranch in the extreme southwestern region of Texas, the drive to the Kansas Railheads is more than 1,200 miles. Despite the length of the drive and losses to stampedes, swollen streams, and Indians, King makes enormous profits. From 1869 through 1884, King sends well more than 100,000 head of cattle to the railheads in Kansas or to ranges of the northern high plains. He continues to plow his profit back into cattle and land until he has hundreds of thousands of acres and tens of thousands of cattle. If Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind is a Richard King-like character during the Civil War, then Tom Dunson is a Richard King-like character in Red River. You earned it. King's great cattle operation is not without problems, which include regular cross-border raids by Mexican banditos such as Juan Cortina and Juan Flores. In three years, King loses 33,000 head of cattle. He asks the state for help, but the governor refuses. In 1867, King begins to fence his huge ranch. At first, his crews put up wooden fences, 
After Bob Wire appears in 1874, the work goes faster. In 1883 alone, the ranch uses 190,000 pounds of Bob Wire. During the mid-1870s, King wages a personal war with Flores and his banditos. Entirely at his own expense, King supplies Captain Lee McNelly and his company of Texas Rangers with horses, food, and the latest Winchester rifles for pursuit of the banditos. McNelly is spectacularly successful, but not without controversy. He not only pursues the Mexican bandits through Texas, but right into Mexico. In Mexico, he destroys several bandito sanctuaries and defeats a Mexican army. While the U.S. government is apoplectic over McNelly's border crossing, Richard King couldn't be happier. By the time of his death in 1885, King has increased the size of his ranch to 614,000 acres. And those are acres he actually owns rather than leases from the government. Following his instructions to buy land and never sell, his son-in-law, Robert Clayburg, adds more acreage to the ranch until by the 1890s the King Ranch is larger than the state of Rhode Island. Like the Eastern Industrial Barons, King tries to control all businesses related to his ranching operation. He invests in railroads, feedlots, packing houses, ice plants, harbors, and ships. King, in many ways, is a king. To improve his longhorns, King brings in Durham bulls from Kentucky. His goal is to produce a steer with a longhorn's toughness and a Durham's bulk. Here again is Professor Yancey. In 1940, the U.S. Department of Agriculture would recognize the Santa Gertrudis breed as the first breed of beef cattle produced in the Western Hemisphere, and really the first anywhere in the world in over a hundred years. In pursuing his dream, Richard King invents modern ranching. Farmers before him tended to raise cattle as a sideline. In the cities, fresh meat was a luxury few could afford. The King Ranch turns ranching into a big business. It also helps turn Americans into a nation of beef eaters. Richard King is a colorful character whose violent temper and wild, rough-hewn nature never diminish with age. King gets in several fights in his lifetime and seems to enjoy them. On one occasion, a big, angry cowboy exclaims to King that if he were not Captain King, the great cattle baron, he would not be able to get away with the profane remarks that he just made. King is no longer a young man, but the old cattleman explodes. Damn you! Forget the riches and the captain title, and let's fight. And fight they do. It is one of the best fights anybody can recall. A cowboy and the captain pummel each other with vicious blows for half an hour. Then, bloody and arm-weary, they shake hands. Thereafter, the cowboy says he will stand back-to-back -back with King anywhere and anytime and die for him if need be. We tend to think of Hollywood's portrayals of the cattle kings of the Old West as exaggerated. Actually, a close look at Richard King demonstrates 
that such a classic western as Red River and John Wayne's character of Tom Dunson told a tale no taller than the facts of the real life of Richard King. And great job to Greg Hengler, and special thanks, as always, to Roger McGrath, author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes. And also a special shout-out to William Yancey, historian at Texas A&M University, Kingsville. Richard King's story, here on Our American Story. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. And we continue with our American stories. And as you know, we tell stories about everything here. But our very favorite stories, well, they come from our nation's warriors. And on the 5th of December in 2012, Afghan Taliban fighters known for killing and kidnapping for ransom got their hands on an American civilian doctor working with an aid organization. U.S. intelligence zeroed in on where Dr. Joseph was being held and a rescue team was soon on the way. Helicopters inserted the SEALs into the mountainous region, and the men hiked for more than four hours in the dark to reach their target. For what happened next, then-senior Chief Edward C. Byers, Jr. would earn our nation's highest award for valor, the Medal of Honor. Here is the citation. The President of the United States, in the name of the Congress, has taken pleasure in awarding the Medal of Honor to Chief Special Warfare Operator C. Air Land, Edward C. Byers, Jr., for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty as a hostage rescue force team member in Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom from 8 to 9, December 2012. As the rescue force approached the target building, an enemy sentry detected them and darted inside to alert his fellow captors. The sentry quickly reemerged, and the lead assaulter attempted to neutralize him. Chief Byers, with his team, sprinted to the door of the target building. As the primary breacher, Chief Byers stood in the doorway fully exposed to enemy fire while ripping down six layers of heavy blankets fastened to the inside ceiling and walls to clear a path for the rescue force. The first assaulter pushed his way through the blankets and was mortally wounded by enemy small arms fire from within. Chief Byers, completely aware of the imminent threat, fearlessly rushed into the room and engaged an enemy guard aiming an AK-47 at him. He then tackled another adult male who had darted towards the corner of the room. During the ensuing hand-to-hand struggle, Chief Byers confirmed the man was not the hostage and engaged him. 
As other rescue team members called out to the hostage, Chief Byers heard a voice respond in English and raced toward it. He jumped atop the American hostage and shielded him from the high volume of fire within the small room. While covering the hostage with his body, Chief Byers immobilized another guard with his bare hands and restrained the guard until a teammate could eliminate him. His bold and decisive actions under fire saved the lives of the hostage and several of his teammates. By his undaunted courage, intrepid fighting spirit, and unwavering devotion to duty in the face of near certain death, Chief Petty Officer Byers reflected great credit upon himself and upheld the highest traditions of the United States Naval Service. That first American assaulter who was mortally wounded was 28-year-old Nick Check. After making sure that all of the hostiles were down and the American hostage was safe, Chief Byers tried desperately to resuscitate his brother both on the ground and throughout their 40-minute-long flight back to their base. Check was posthumously awarded our nation's second-highest award for valor, the Navy Cross. And Chief Byers, as you heard, earned the Medal of Honor. Here is Chief Byers, who, by the way, remained on active duty, addressing a crowd gathered to induct him into the Pentagon's Hall of Heroes. Good afternoon, everyone. I've realized throughout my life that time is the most precious commodity you have, and I sincerely thank you all for your time today. I will speak just long enough to give credit and recognition to the heroes in my life and to those who deserve to know that they are the reason that I'm standing here today. Those heroes are my family, my faith, and the brotherhood. Family is the reason I'm able to do this job, and it's also the reason to live and to return home safely. Madison, my incredible wife, Hannah, my beautiful daughter. This could not have been possible without your resiliency and love. Your strength in my absence is something I've always admired and respected. From the bottom of my heart, thank you. I will never forget how each time I returned home from long times away, you'd be waiting to pick me up, sometimes in the middle of the night, waiting to give me a hug and a kiss, especially you, Hannah. I would not be the man I am if it were not for the two of you. You are my heroes. I love you. Hand in hand with my family is my faith. While it has had a more quiet aspect of my life, it has always played a significant role. I grew up Catholic and continue to grow in my faith, thanks especially to my brother, Trevor. He taught me to turn my heart and soul towards Christ when I have strayed or lost my way. Prayer has always provided calm amidst chaos for me. On my first deployment to Iraq some 11 years ago, I arrived in country and I saw another SEAL standing there with him, St. Michael the Archangel patch on his shoulder. I'm not sure what drew me to it, but I walked up to him and asked him if I could have it. He was leaving the combat zone and made it through a safe deployment. He handed it to me without hesitation. I've worn a patch on my kit on every single mission I've ever been a part of. And I prayed the St. Michael prayer while moving in the toughest missions I've faced. And it does start by saying, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protection. On that day in December 2012, 
The day you heard recounted several times about my team and the way we carried out the mission to rescue American hostage. On that day, just like every day, I prayed. I prayed on the way to my target. And again, I prayed over my brother, Nicholas Check, for his soul as he gave his life to save another American. Nick Check was a warrior, a brother and a friend. I know I said this repeatedly since this has started, but this award is inseparable from his death. Nick embodied the brotherhood. Nick embodied what it meant to be a Navy SEAL. He was hard as nails, resilient. He had a never quit, never fail mentality. Nick, along with the rest of our team, carried out some of the most difficult and dangerous missions our nation could have asked us to do. Nicholas Check paid the ultimate sacrifice, doing what he loved on the battlefield because this is what brothers do. They will lay down your life for you if they have to. We are again reminded this morning of the continued sacrifices the men and women of our nation make. The hotel where many of our sustain overlooks Washington, D.C., the Pentagon, and Arlington National Cemetery. I, along with many of my teammates, have been to many funerals at Arlington, probably more than we should at our age and our life. We've seen too many good men buried. So many may ask, what is it that keeps you going? How are you standing here after such loss? The answer is, undoubtedly, without question, the brotherhood. I say the brotherhood for last. I want to emphasize that I'm no different than any one of my teammates. I'm certain that any one of them would have taken the same exact actions I did that day. I've seen countless heroics acts in my time working with the nation's most elite operators. I feel a sense of responsibility with the recognition that has been bestowed upon me. My brothers who are still fighting, who are still in the shadows, deserve to share the spotlight where we are a community of quiet professionals and those men would not expect or seek recognition for their actions. I proudly wear this trident to represent the Brotherhood. And now I've been welcomed into another group of exceptional military heroes. I look at the names in the Hall of Heroes and to the brave men right in front of me here and realize the tremendous amount of bravery that flows through our American veins. Freedom is in large part paid by blood, sweat, and tears. I've never imagined my life would lead me here. I'm truly humbled and honored to represent the Navy and the Naval Special Warfare community. My only desire is that my representation is something my brothers who I serve with would be proud of. Because the deed is all, not the glory. May God bless you and may St. Michael the Archangel protect our warriors in battle along with the brotherhood. Thank you. And you were listening to Navy SEAL Master Chief Edward Byers, Jr. And that's what our fighting men sound like. The humility, it's there, you can hear it. He doesn't even want to be there. He really doesn't. He has to be, because it's in order. But he knows that he doesn't act alone. And the Brotherhood is the reason. Talk to any of these guys. It's more than country, actually. You really get to know them. Obviously, they love their country. But what they do and why they do it, it's because their brother would have done it, too. 
That's why we always cry when we hear these stories. The deed is all, not the glory. And we could say that every day before we start the day, and we'd all have better lives. Especially in this Instagram, Facebook fame culture. It's so empty, and we all know it. Navy SEAL Master Chief Edward Byers' story, every soldier's story, here on Our American Story. American stories, and we're, well, just a couple of hours east of Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast, is a town called Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and you just heard Leonard Skinner reference, Leonard Skinner reference this place in their iconic song. Well, southeast of Memphis and southwest of Nashville, this little town has created a very big sound. Some of the biggest names in soul, funk, pop, rock, country, every genre in between recorded there, and our own Jesse Edwards brings us a front row seat. In the late 1950s, a young fiddle player from Mississippi by the name of Rick Hall hit Paydirt when George Jones, Brenda Lee, and Roy Orbson began recording songs that he had written. He moved to Florence, Alabama, home of legendary record producer Sam Phillips, and opened a primitive recording studio above the city drugstore. With the typical egg crates on the walls, uh, car- uh, carpet that we'd got out of a theater, etc., etc., uh, and we began to cut little demos and write songs. Soon, Rick had recorded his first hit with Arthur Alexander's "You Better Move On" in 1961. Rick would use studio musicians from Nashville to accompany the singer. Arthur had uh, written several tunes, but he couldn't play an instrument, so he had to pop his fingers and sing the song a cappello. And uh, so consequently, uh, he brought me a tune called You Better Move On and asked me what I thought. And of course, immediately I began, I was intrigued by Benny King, Stand By Me, and the Jacksons and people like that. And the beat was boom, 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 boom. That was a very popular beat up on the roof. A lot of <clears throat> drifters, coasters, a lot of people had those, had that groove. And that song to me fit that groove. And he said, what do you think? I said, I think it's a hit. I think we should cut it on you right away. He said, that's great. So we went in the studio with four microphones and a Berlant recorder, a small little Berlant recorder, used the bathroom for an echo chamber, and uh, and we proceeded to cut it. You asked me to give up the hand of the girl I love. You tell me I'm not the man she's worthy of. But who are you? Tell her who to love That's up to her 
Yes, and the Lord above You better move on After recording You Better Move On, Rick Hall now had to sell it to a major record company, something that's not exactly easy to do without street cred. I took it to Nashville because I didn't have any ends with New York, L.A., or any of the major cities, Philadelphia or uh, New Orleans, uh, and I was a country boy, no money, and no means to do anything. So I took it up there thinking I might be able to make a deal on it with the master. Uh, played to seven record label executives, uh, the Chad Adkins, the Owen Bradleys, Shelby Singletons, the Don Laws, etc., etc., but not knowing that they were strictly country people and didn't know anything about R&B or black music. Nashville was all country, and they turned down the song. But Rick Hall kept trying until a friendly DJ passed the track on to Randy Wood, founder of Dot Records. After it reached number 24 on Billboard in March of 62, Hall took the proceeds from that recording to build the sound studio on Avalon Avenue in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. The city of Muscle Shoals is one of four towns grouped together with a combined population around 60,000, the other towns being Florence, Sheffield, and Tuscumbia. Helen Keller was born here, and so was legendary record producer Sam Phillips, who launched the careers of Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, and so many others out of his famous Sun Studio in Memphis, 150 miles to the west. Sam Phillips was also one of Rick Hall's early mentors, which helps explain how Rick began turning this relatively obscure place into the self-proclaimed recording capital of the world. Armed with one gold record under his belt and new facilities in Muscle Shoals at famed studios, Rick Hall set out to record another album. In 1963, he produced the first hit in that building with Steal Away by Jimmy Hughes. I've got to see you Somehow Not tomorrow Right now I know it's late Whoa, I can't wait So come on and steal away Please steal away I had considerably more confidence in my abilities as a producer and thought maybe I'd found my stick. And I found Jimmy Hughes, who was working at a rubber plant here, Robbins Rubber Company in Muscle Shoals. He brought me a song called Steal Away that he'd written. I cut it and it was a hit, smash. To make a long story short, I had to press it up on my own label and promote it myself and go to all the black disc jockeys, New Orleans, Memphis, uh, Atlanta, Miami, by car, and do the promoting. But it became a very big smash record with VJ Records, and that, that started my black music career. Of course, I had been intrigued as a songwriter, a musician, and played all of those things that Ernie Cado and all the big acts, the black acts, that were selling a lot of records to the white audiences. And I was intrigued by it, and it was my stick. I, I loved it, still do, always will. Jimmy Hughes recorded the song in one take, backed by studio musicians, arranged by Rick Hall. The track hit number 17 on Billboard's Hot 100. With two hit records to his name, Rick Hall had now proven that his first hit wasn't a fluke. And when we come back, the legend of the Muscle Shoals sound continues, right here on Our American Stories. Oh, I can't wait. 
everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends and follow us on Facebook at ouramericannetwork.org. Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Fame Studios, and the Muscle Shoals sound. Here's Jesse. Alabama in 1963 wasn't exactly known as a time or place for racial harmony. The newly elected governor, George Wallace, had openly called for segregation in his inaugural address. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow. It was also the year of the Birmingham campaign. Protesters led by Martin Luther King were arrested for parading without a permit. We own the move now. The beating and killing of our clergymen and young people will not divert us. We own the move now. Yes, sir. The release of their known murderers will not discourage us. We own the move now. Yes, sir. Thousands of African Americans, many of them children, are arrested for protesting segregation. Fire hoses and police dogs were used against them. It was a dark chapter in American history. But back in this other little corner of the state, at Rick Hall's famed studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, the very same year, blacks and whites were integrating in ways that would shape the history of American music forever. Fame Studios was now a hotbed for soul singers who wanted Rick Hall to record their songs using his Muscle Shoals rhythm section, also known as the Swampers, as the backing band. We in the music business are colorblind. Uh, I think most of the arts are colorblind. We never, some of my best friends in life, today and then, were black people. you got to remember, this was in the 60s. And this was when uh, George Wallace was standing in the schoolhouse door at the University of Alabama. It's when the National Guard came to Arkansas. These are, these are tough times, and they didn't, uh, black people I had no problem with. If I had a problem with anybody, it was white people who didn't like me socializing or recording black music in Alabama with this all going on. But I never had any problem with it. Uh, not here, I had more trouble when I went to LA or New York than I had in, in, in the studio or in Alabama or on concerts and things of that nature. Singer-songwriters would come in, Rick's session players would back the artist, and they'd lay down some funky tracks, turn it into cash. They were so good, it was like printing money. And the hits just kept coming. Rick Hall produces Etta James' Tell Mama. You thought you hadn't found a good girl One to love you and give you the world This was the biggest hit of her career. The next big hit to come out of Fame Studios was When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge.
Now, Rick Hall knew that he had a big, fat hit with When a Man Loves a Woman, so he ran it past legendary record producer Jerry Wexler at Atlantic Records. I found the master and sent it to him, and he called me and said he didn't think it was a hit. I said, you're crazy. It's a smash, Jerry. All you got to do is hide and watch. And he said, uh, well, send it up. Uh, so I sent it up, and he listened to it. He said, I don't, think, I don't think it's a hit. Are you sure you think this is a hit? I said, it's a smash. I bet my life on it. Number one. Not number two, number one. Wexler reluctantly agreed to release the song on Atlantic under the condition that it be re-recorded because the horns at the end of the track were slightly out of tune. The horn players were fired, the song was re-recorded, but the tapes got mixed up. Atlantic released the original version in April of 66 by mistake. Sledge's recording becomes the first number one hit, recorded in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Now that Rick Hall had established himself as a player in the music business, Jerry Wexler started bringing bigger and bigger acts down to Muscle Shoals. I had Wilson Pickett signed up, and for a year we just couldn't seem to make any headway. Uh, the songs that I brought him he didn't like, the songs that he wanted to record didn't strike me as being suitable. So I took Wilson Pickett to Muscle Shows, and there was just a listing of chords, chord progressions, no rhythm pattern, nothing, just chords. And we put the record together by the musicians playing the music and playing into a pattern. And the first thing we cut was Land of a Thousand Dances, which was enormous. And the energy and the sonority of that record, it, to me, is wonderful to this day, the projection just something that comes that leaps out of a record I call it the sonority of the record that it's different from the rhythm it's not exactly the sound it's not the songs it's the gestalt it's the way the sound of the record impacts on the ear instantly and to me that's the magic ingredient in a phonograph record if you can convey that it can't be defined or explained but it's something that just grabs you and so from then on Muscle Shoals became the place that I preferred to go and loved to go. Jerry Wexler then introduced Aretha Franklin. He said, you know, I've got this great little studio down in um, Muscle Shoals, and these cats, are, these cats are really greasy. You're going to love it. Aretha had made nine albums while under contract to Columbia Records, but she wasn't selling. When they let her contract lapse in 66, Wexler signed her to Atlantic and flew her directly to Muscle Shoals in 1967. We did what we called head sessions at that time, and there was no real music written for it. The musicians would just listen to what it was I was doing, and then they would decide what they were going to do around that. I Never Loved a Man rose to number nine on the Hot 100 and became Franklin's first number one hit on the R&B charts. Franklin became a superstar after this recording.
Rick Hall recorded the song in 20 minutes. But it was only after a tense moment in the studio, and you have to appreciate the context here. Aretha was in the deep south during the mid-60s with a room full of sweaty white good old boys that she had never met, all while being asked to cut a hit record on the spot. No pressure, right? After an awkward moment of silence, one of the house musicians, Spooner Oldham, started playing the opening riff on a keyboard. And that's the sound of our tour guide, playing the exact same Wurlitzer piano used on the record. You can come here to Fame Studios today and hear it for yourself. So it's really cool, y'all. It makes me sound like I know what I'm doing, which I need a lot of help. I know, isn't it beautiful? It's like R&B in a box. It's just amazing. Our guide does a little of everything here at Fame Studios. So my name's Spencer Coates. I'm the studio assistant here. I've been here for about four and a half years, and I'm just one of like the everything guys around here. I'm one of the engineers. Uh, primarily do the assistant engineering in the room. Um, but, you know, I just help out with all like the tours. I sell merch uh, and really just try to make sure that anybody that comes inside Fame really has a great time and... Uh, it's a fun gig. Other than that, you know, at night we're all songwriting, making records, and just trying to do everything we possibly can to get a little taste of what everybody else that we see on the walls every single day had. So it's a, it's a blast. It really is. Fame Studio Tours run six days a week, no reservations, at 10 bucks per person. And it's a functioning studio that's recently been used by artists like Jason Isbell and Steven Tyler. I could get into a long list of every rock star who's come and gone around here, but it would be too long. Just assume that anybody who's anybody in the music industry has recorded here, wants to record here, or plans to record here. Dwayne Allman once pitched a tent in the parking lot just to be close to the action. He became friends with Rick Hall and ended up showing Wilson Pickett how to play Hey Jude. They recorded it in 1968. After hearing the recording, Jerry Wexler asked Rick Hall who was playing lead guitar. Rick told him, some hippie cat who's been living in our parking lot. Shortly afterward, Allman was offered a recording contract. And when we come back, the legend of the Muscle Shoals sound continues here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, and we're back with our story about Muscle Shoals. And we were all laughing in the studio. Jerry Wexler asks Rick Hall, who's that guy playing guitar on that track? And he says, oh, some hippie kid living in the parking lot. And that was Dwayne Allman, folks, and the start of one of the great American blues and rock bands, the Allman Brothers Band and the creation of Southern Rock. And now we return to the story of this small town that rose up to be a big, big music town in this country. Here again is Jesse. 
The Muscle Shoals rhythm section that worked for Rick Hall at Fame Studios became known as the Swampers. In 1969, they left Rick Hall to create their own recording company known as the Muscle Shoals Sound Studios. Rick Hall felt betrayed. But there was nothing he could do about his house band setting up their own recording studio across town. But he eventually gets over it. The Swampers set up shop inside of an old coffin showroom on Jackson Highway in Sheffield, Alabama. They get straight to work by recording Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones, Paul Simon's Kodachrome, and the Staple Singers, I'll Take You There. That's just to name a few of the first big hits to come out of this new studio. Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, Willie Nelson, Leonard Skinner, Joe Cocker, Bob Seger, Rod Stewart, Cat Stevens. All of them would record here between 69 and 70. The studio moved in 1979 and the building was shut down until 2013 when a $1 million grant from an unlikely source allowed a complete restoration of the studios. That million dollar donation came in from rapper Dr. Dre, who just happened to appreciate the music and the history that's come out of this little building. Just like famed studios across town, Muscle Shoals Sound Studios has recorded the soundtracks to many of our lives. And you can come here and experience it for yourself. You can even use the famous toilet that has seated rock royalty from Keith Richards to Bob Dylan. On any given day, you might even just run into one of the original Swampers. If you didn't know what they look like, you'd probably miss them, because they look just like ordinary, everyday Americans. But the lives they've lived and the stories that they can tell are anything but ordinary. Jimmy Johnson is an original Swamper. And he's performed with Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, and countless others. He also engineered three tracks on the Rolling Stones album, Sticky Fingers. I started playing guitar because of Chuck Berry. Uh, Before that, my dad, a country music player, had tried to influence me to play, and I I had no interest because I didn't like country music. I like R&B, blues, and jazz, certain types of jazz that don't get too wild. By the time I got influenced by that, uh, by Chuck Berry, I heard him on the radio playing Johnny B. Good. And when I heard that, I said, I've got to learn how to do that. And I did. There was no schools, no uh, place to go to learn, you know, how to play on sessions or anything. There was no, uh, back then, we didn't even have charts. I did learn how to read number charts, and that's what we used on sessions uh, from New York, L.A., Nashville, Memphis, everywhere, and here. First time I got paid, I was about 11 years old. I played at the Tuscumbia Armory Square Dance. Half the night was square dance music, and half the night on Saturday nights was rock and roll. And so I made 10 bucks. I had no clue that I could do this for a career. But uh, I got into a band. Our band was called the Delrays. And we started playing colleges when I was still in high school. 
that time, when I started, there was no studios around. And, uh, and the ones in Nashville were very hard to, to get involved with. It was like uh, almost impossible. For some reason, of which I'm thankful for today, we never had to leave. And uh, instead of going to New York, LA, Nashville, London, wherever, they came to us. And we felt blessed that that happened. Uh, when we first started, nobody ever used the geographic name Muscle Shows for anything except aluminum. When we decided to name our studio, once we started it, we finally settled on Muscle Show Sound Studios. And then we had to name the rhythm section, which we named it basically the same thing. David Hood is another original swamper who started his career as a backup musician at Fame Studios. He went on to co-found Muscle Shoals Sound Studio with Jimmy Johnson, where they produced songs for Willie Nelson, Cher, all sorts of others. He played bass for Boz Skaggs and Aretha Franklin, Cat Stevens, Paul Simon, Bob Seger, Traffic, the Staple Singers, Etta James, Percy Sledge. You get the picture. I saw my first bass guitar, which is my instrument, at... Uh Naval Reserve, which is a facility in Sheffield that we later bought and put our recording studios in, but they would have dances there. And uh, I was in the room, and I'd hear this doom, 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 and I would go up and look at the band. There were two guitar players there, and I'd think, well, what's making that noise? And I'd go back to the back of the room, because that's where you heard the bass, and then hear it, and I'd finally realized that one of those instruments was larger than the other one, and it was the bass guitar. And I was in high school before I knew that the instrument I make my living with even existed. I started late, I guess you could say, because most of the people I work with have been playing since they were 10, 12 years old, and I started playing uh, the bass at around 18. After a couple years with this band, it was uh, the Mystics with Terry Woodford was singing. Uh, Terry's father put up the money for us to come here to Fame Studio and rent the studio for, uh, I think it was a Sunday afternoon. And uh, we recorded two things there, and that was my first recording. And I saw then that, wow, I love this. The recording, that's what it, where it's at. The playing live is okay, but it involves a lot of travel and lifting amplifiers and things like that. When you go in the recording studio, you're just you're there to make music. And I really was turned on immediately to the idea that you would record something and listen back and hear it and think, mm, well, I need to fix that. And I, so I think early my career in, mu in uh, recorded music was the direction for me. Now, Kevin Hawley is a longtime guitar player for Little Richard, and he was recorded with Dwayne Allman and many others. He became a swamper in 1991. A typical session here, I mean, if you if you're say you're a singer and you come in Muscle Shoals and you hire the A team, they'll listen to the demo, they'll write a chart out, and without rehearsing it, they'll just count it off, and then it just happens. A lot of artists will come here thinking that they're going to get this Muscle Shoals sound, and that's not necessarily the case. You know, you can't force it. You know, it happens naturally. You bring any artist from any genre to Muscle Shoals and use Muscle Shoals players, it's going to sound like Muscle Shoals. 
If you bring a bunch of guys from Los Angeles here to record, it's going to probably still sound like L.A. But to me, the feeling here, you know, is with the musicians that, that play here. When we return, more of the Muscle Shoals sound, Fame Studios, and the musicians who made it all happen, right here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends and follow us on Facebook at ouramericannetwork.org. American Stories, and you're listening to the stories of legendary fame studios and the Muscle Shoals sound. And we've been listening to the voices of the session players, who so often go unnoticed and underappreciated once a record becomes a hit. And now we return to our own Jesse Edwards. The definitive Muscle Shoals documentary came out in 2013 titled Muscle Shoals. If you haven't seen it, order it online. It's incredible. But unfortunately, just five years after its release, the father of Muscle Shoals music, Rick Hall, passed away on January 2nd of 2018 at 85 years old. During his music career, he recorded almost every genre of music from country to R&B, and he's responsible for roughly 350 million album sales worldwide. But the spirit of this place lives on. It's crawling with world-class musicians who have recorded some of the best music that life has to offer. Will McFarlane has been playing guitar for over 40 years professionally, six of those with Bonnie Raitt. Now, he's part of the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. Got some really nice gigs. Really apprenticed in Bonnie Raitt's band. I was in her band for five, six years. Toured with her all through the 70s. And... Uh, Got married and had kids, and L.A. just wasn't the place to live, and I met some folks from here. I met Jimmy Johnson in a hotel room in, in L.A., and uh, he asked me to play him some songs, and I'd always loved Muscle Shoals music, and just uh, came down here to demo a couple. He said, I'd like to demo that song, so they graciously flew me down here from L.A., and wasn't in a traffic jam for three days, and just uh, the beautiful river and the area. And I flew back to L.A., and the first time it took me, you know, four hours to go 38 miles, I just said, this is not living. And I packed up my family and moved here in 1980, where I was fortunately became part of the rhythm section, really. I became a friend of the Swampers, as it's called, and uh, worked with them for 20 years. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, I think drew me to Muscle Shoals uh, was that you know, if you hear Memphis, and I love Memphis, but if you hear Sam and Dave or Otis, you go, that was cut in Memphis. 
Or you hear Motown, you know, that was cut in Detroit. But the same band did I'll Take You There, Old Time Rock and Roll, Kodachrome, and Torn Between Two Lovers, <laughs> and Low Spark of High Heel Boys. I mean, how versatile is that? And so you didn't always immediately know, but there was some intangible, it was some place in the pocket that all of those things I just mentioned to you have an amazing feel. And that's another thing about Muscle Shoals. One of the mantras here is less is more. They're never overproduced. It's never, you're never smashed in the face with everybody, everybody's every thought. It's just generally, you know, when you listen to When a Man Loves a Woman and, and a Do Right Woman or those things, they, the song breathes. You hear the song, you hear the artist. And, and that's what I was drawn to, especially after all my years with Bonnie where, you know, what was she? She wasn't country. She wasn't straight blue. You know what I mean? She was just this versatile, you know, combination of all of our influences that we loved the most. And I just felt Muscle Shoals was a perfect fit for the way I played and the way I thought and the kind of music I loved. Putting your finger on what makes music that comes out of Muscle Shoals sound the way that it does can be difficult even for the swampers themselves. But Will McFarlane has a pretty good idea of where it comes from. The wonderful stuff about the guitar playing out of Muscle Shoals is most of it's only two notes at a time. You know, it's not these big driving things. You hear people go, oh, excuse me, <laughs> you know, you know, that kind of thing, you know, beautiful thing. So you'd hear, uh, you know, I'd be doing a Bobby Bland record maybe or something, and it'd just be... You know, something. Sometimes the artist would go, give me a few love licks. You know, and he'd want, or, you know, or really, you know, that kind of two-stop thing where you hear, you'll hear when a man loves a woman, you The guitar player just plays very few notes, and that's one of the things I really love about it, is the minimalistic approach. What I really feel like the Muscle Shoals mentality is, if people hear a great song, and the artist is right there in front of them, they're saying, how can we be your band? We want to capture, you. we don't want you to, we don't want to make a record for you that, that sounds like so-and-so went to Muscle Shoals. We want to make the record for you that you hear in your head. But in Muscle Shoals, I think one of the great intangibles is, is that I really believe every musician in this town that hears a song and sees an artist that we all respect, we go, how can we help you to so dig your, your music in this town? We're going to lay our preset and our musical egos down, and we're going to let the song shine. We want the artist to shine. Walt Aldridge worked at Fame Recording Studio for 17 years under Rick Hall as a producer, songwriter, and backup musician. He's written dozens of hit country songs, including five number ones. Songwriting picked me as opposed to me picking it. I, I was lucky to have a guy named Rick Hall who was sort of my teacher and mentor. I came out of school thinking that I wanted to be a session guitar player, and then I heard some real session guitar players and went out and I always say tied my guitar on the back of my car and dragged it home. You know? But he always encouraged me to, to engineer and do everything that I possibly could, and, and I did. And it has served me well, but along with that, I was just writing songs at night and trying to learn about that craft. All of a sudden, I had a song recorded and it became a hit by Ronnie Millsap, and 
people were calling me to to write songs for them or write songs with them, and I said, hey, I, I think I could do this. And so while I never quit doing those other things, that sort of became my specialty is writing songs. That number one hit that he wrote for Ronnie Millsap, There's No Getting Over Me, hit number one on the country charts in 1981 and number five on the Hot 100. Well, you can walk out on me tonight If you think that it ain't feeling right But darling, there ain't no getting over me Like so many other session players here in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Walt Aldridge is often asked what it is about this place that makes it so special when it comes to recording hit records. I'm not sure I have an answer, but maybe an even more appropriate question might be, why has it continued since the scene developed here at Muscle Shoals? It's consistently had music makers and creators that have been an important part of the, the international and global music scene as writers, as musicians, as artists, as producers, as engineers, studio owners, and what have you. During that time, you had Detroit and Memphis and Macon and a lot of other outposts other than Nashville and L.A. and New York that became important recording centers, but they're gone. It's still here. I mean, we still have important music being made here, and that is the intriguing question to me is how has it continued when those other places have come and gone? I don't know that I or anyone else has the answer to that question other than the fact that the people here seem to have a really fierce commitment to that history, heritage, and to the process of mentoring or passing it on down to the next generation. I think the the muscle show sound, if there is one traditionally, has always been a it's a combination of, of, of blues and country music. I, those that really are devotees or students of the music know that there have been several eras to Muscle Shoals music. There was that, and then there was certainly the rock era that, that had Bob Seger and the Stones and Paul Simon and a lot of things that were cut in this actual room that we're sitting in. And then you have all the songwriting that has happened. I mean, an incredible number of hit songs that have been accounted for by writers living and working here in the Shoals area. But I think when the question is asked of me of what is the Muscle Shoals sound, I always think of that rhythm section sound of the 60s which was predominantly white guys playing their interpretation of soul music but it also had a little something else it had a little funk to it a little blues a little rural uh, homespun organic quality that was not being made in uh, Memphis making other areas that were make uh, Detroit Philadelphia other areas that were making soul music The hundreds of recordings that came from the Muscle Shoals area have influenced the way people all over the world appreciate American music. And it's all thanks to one man, Rick Hall. If you're ever in the northern Alabama area and you have any interest in the history of American music recording, put this place on your bucket list if it isn't there already. You're guaranteed to get chills up your arm and up the back of your neck every time you enter one of these sacred studios. For the very first time. For Our American Stories in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, I'm Jesse Edwards. Something tells me you would have stayed another month there, Jesse, and maybe never come back. I'm glad you're back. And what a piece of, well, let's just say reporting, if we can call it that. And do go to Muscle Shoals. It's the river. It's the space. It's that small town feel, too. Don't ever forget it. The musician said over and over again that minimalistic approach but they lead minimalistic lives, folks. 
That's what they do. And they lead the lives so many other Americans live in small-town America. Minimalistic spaces. Less is more. You heard them say that over and over again. A couple of notes on a guitar. And the artists, what a crazy idea. The musicians serving a song. If you know anything about studio musicians and session players, very often they're auditioning for gigs on other records. They're overplaying. When you went to the Shoals and you got the Swampers, they were there to serve you. Muscle Shoals, what a story. Rick Hall's story, the story of American music, and the story of race music, white and black music being recorded together by two races at the same time, being played on white and black stations all over this country. It had not happened before until Muscle Shoals. All of that here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 